Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about the meaning of science fiction. I'm Charlie Jean Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who obsesses a lot about science. And I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. Today we're going to talk about queerness in science fiction and fantasy in honor of Pride Month, and we're going to get into just what makes science fiction so darn queer. And also what happened when queers took over science fiction, which, as you know, just recently happened. So you may have noticed. Um, And so we'll we'll talk a little bit about that, too. So I was thinking about how science fiction, fantasy, and horror, if you just smush them all together as kind of the speculative fiction category, they've been dealing with queerness for almost all of recorded human history. And we're not going to go into all of that. We don't have time to go all the way back to talking about like Ovid's metamorphoses and how that's kind of perverted and it's about people changing shape. Um, Very transgressive and kind of transgender in some cases. Yeah, completely. And a lot of fairy tales deal with gender play. Um, A lot of fantasy involves, you know, people thinking they're in love with a girl, but they're really in love with a boy. And depending on what gender they are, that can end up being pretty queer. And so that's kind of, I think, built into the structure of these speculative genres is that there's there's a way in which they offer us a kind of free play to imagine couplings, forms of love, forms of sex that fly in the face of convention. Yeah, and I think at the root of science fiction and fantasy is a kind of like opening up of possibility and a kind of uh, dismantling of the expectations and norms that uh, shape the world normally. It's it's just like anything can happen, and reality itself is kind of up for grabs. And so it kind of opens like the door. Super great for queer sex. It really is. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's what I got into it for. I was like, I want to disrupt reality. You know? I know, me too. I'm just, just like, like yeah. <laughs> we're going to talk in this episode about queer sexuality, and you know, we're not really going to talk about gender issues and transgender issues because we're going to talk about that in a later episode. Okay? We have a whole trans episode ready for you guys. Coming yeah, soon. it's going to happen. It's us. Okay, so yeah, don't, don't worry. worry. <laughs> <laughs> the trans episode is on its way. Yeah. All right. So I feel like, you know, just to kind of finish up talking about history, because I'd love to sort of start by thinking about the history of this stuff. I really feel like queer sex enters speculative fiction in a way that we would recognize in the modern world, kind of in the late 19th century. And like a lot of people, you know, I'm pretty obsessed with vampire stories because obviously they're amazing. There's a 19th century novel called Camilla which later became like a million other stories. It became movies. It became the basis for Hammer Studios films, of course, because Carmilla is like a super hot lesbian vampire. But the original novel, um, the 19th century novel, is also very queer. It's about a young woman who's kind of haunted by images of women who come and puncture her flesh as, as lesbians are wont to do. Um, (laughs) at least in the 19th century. That's the only thing we had in the 19th century, just flesh puncturing. We were basically invertebrates at that time. So, um, So we did that. But so I think that that's kind of where we start. And then once you get into the 20th century, you have really interesting thought experiments like the novel Herland by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, which is about a world that is, it's not a world, it's a country, a hidden country that some men stumble across. 
um, kind of like Themyscira, where it's all women and they have they are such amazing scientists that they've invented parthenogenesis. So one does not have to have naughty lesbian sex in order right. to have babies on this island. But come on, like they're all hanging out, they're doing archery, they're going to class together, you know they're having sex. Yeah, and I think that often utopias have an element of queerness or particularly lesbianism. Like a lot of utopias, there's a ton of women-only utopias from the beginning that are always kind of at least somewhat lesbian identified. And part of what makes a utopia utopian is that we've gotten rid of violence and sexual competition and jealousy and all of the things that prevented people from being happy and fulfilling themselves. And so in that way, there's something kind of inherently a little bit queer about a lot of utopias. That's interesting. I mean, I feel like there's also kind of all male utopias too. Mm -hmm. That's certainly in the, in the, Western classical world, like if you look at sort of the Greek and Roman ideal, well, especially the Greek ideal, mm -hmm. it was that those utopias were kind of boy, all boy utopias. And I, I feel like in a way, I'm sure Charlotte Perkins Gilman was thinking about that stuff when she was making her land. Right. She was like probably steeped in that literature, having been educated in the late 19th and early 20th century. And she was like, oh, here's the lady version. And right. It's way better. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just, you know, more to her liking. Yeah. And so the other thing that's interesting about early 20th century science fiction is that there's a lot of stories early on, like say the novel Slan, Mm -hmm. which many people thought was also meant fan, um, but also slans who are just kind of super smart mutants. They're kind of like proto X-Men. Mm -hmm. They're very, they're a little bit gay. And then also like so many 1930s science fiction movies are just full of these crazy gender bending costumes. Mm -hmm. Lots and lots of silver lame, lots and lots of like giant collars and huge shoulders and just, you know, kind of like, campy but also just very dramatic and arch and like often women are sort of dressed in these almost dominatrixy outfits yeah and i think that that was a space again <clears throat> as we were saying before these are these are stories where people get to play with roles and play with ideas that are maybe forbidden in a realistic story and so suddenly yeah you get these queens who are like ordering people around mm -hmm. um, with their giant collars and so you know, like um, be women and yeah, like <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I know we promised that we were mostly going to talk about sex and not gender but I think that this is one place where especially in the 30s gender play and queer identity were all kind of bound up together mm -hmm. and so people thought of them at this as the same thing and also that's kind of the basis for what we think of as camp in mm -hmm. the 1960s like a lot of these outfits show up in, in sort of 60s parodies. They, of course, show up in Rocky Horror Picture Show, which we'll talk about later in this episode. But my point is, it was campy, and it was definitely in reference to 30s. Uh, yeah, and there was always a little bit of subversion like worked into these movies. Like I feel like it was a place where people who couldn't get work elsewhere in Hollywood would go to work in sci-fi movies mm -hmm. and, and TV, and they would kind of you know sneak in themes about things that they weren't allowed to talk about elsewhere. Yeah, and I mean, and let's not forget that James Whale, who did um, Bride of Frankenstein uh, and, and a number of other famous monster films of the 30s, was gay mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of open about it, actually. There's an amazing film called Gods and Monsters, mm -hmm. which, um, which deals with his life. Our family had no doubt about who they were, but I was an aberration in that household, a freak of nature. It came out in the, I want to say in the 90s. Yeah, no, it's a... One of uh, Bill Condon's first films yeah. with Brendan Fraser. Yeah, Brendan Fraser being amazing, by the way. 
So you have these sort of queer foundations of science fiction that go back to pretty much the beginning of the genre as like a recognized genre, but then something really amazing happens in the 1960s, which is that actual like openly queer people start writing science fiction and dealing with queer themes much more explicitly than before. And you have authors like Thomas Dish, who was openly gay. Samuel Delaney. Samuel Delaney. Joanna and, Russ, who I love. And David Gerald, who started out on Star Trek, but then quickly went into writing novels. Okay, he started right by writing The Trouble with Tribbles the trouble when with... he was like 18 or something. And The Trouble with Tribbles actually is an episode that's all about like abnormal reproduction and about it like parthenogenesis. It's They're so like true. Lesbian little fur balls. And also that... little soft balls. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and they're sort of anyway, they, they take they, over everything, right? And then and they do, and um, just just like queer sex will take over everything. Um, mm-hmm. And and then he goes on to write, like in the early seventies, he kind of has this explosion of of novels and writes one of my favorite gay science fiction novels ever called "The Man Who Folded Himself," which is about a guy who goes back in time a bunch of times and finally like meets dozens and dozens and dozens of versions of himself and they get like a giant mansion with a swimming pool and have like huge orgies so he just has like orgies with all these versions of himself which is just you know it's the gayest thing ever it is basically the gayest thing ever and it's so fun it's like a really weird fun novel it's one of the most inventive uses of time travel ever and meanwhile you do have people like Samuel Delaney who are very explicitly dealing with gay sex in books like Dahlgren and it's not at all in a kind of humorous tribbly vein it's right really serious literary stuff and Joanna Russ uh who's a very dear friend of Samuel Delaney's also was doing a similar thing in her work and her famous novel from the 60s The Female Man uh, is a very serious literary work, also about time travel, interestingly, about uh, several different women who are kind of versions of each other living in different timelines and struggling with a lot of the same uh, problems with patriarchy and microaggressions. And it's actually quite prescient in some ways. She has like a great scene where with one of the characters who's an English professor at a university, just like dealing with microaggressions. And it's like written as a play. And the play is just her at a party with like every guy microaggressing her. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, and then you have Ursula K. Le Guin, who we've talked about a lot on this podcast before, who deals with gender and sexuality in these very sort of fascinating, oblique ways by going to other planets and other cultures in which, you know, sexuality and gender are handled differently, like in The Left Hand of Darkness, where you have these humanoids who go from some kind of gender neutral state to either male or female when they go into a state called Kemmer and want to mate with someone and what gender they become depends on who they want to mate with and, you know, other circumstances. And it sort of goes along with all these other things, like they can get an unnatural strength called Dota, where they can become really strong for an hour and then they get really tired. And it's just like their physiology is really fascinating in general. And she treats their ambisexual gender with the same kind of seriousness and kind of groundedness as all the other things that are, that are unusual about them. And it's sort of part of a holistic look at their culture and their folklore and like all of the stuff that they believe in. And it just felt like the new wave of science fiction in books was just a chance to explore everything that science fiction had kind of only implicitly dealt with before, including sexuality and queerness, but also just including every other aspect of life that had been kind of left on the table before. Yeah, and I think then in the 1970s, you see a huge explosion of this kind of stuff of sexual experimentation in science fiction, exploring, you know, certainly gay identity, but also bisexual identity, polyamory, which wasn't called polyamory back then. But you know, there's people who are all in 
all together in kind of either orgy situations or they're they're in plural marriages. You get things like the movie Zardoz, which starts with the penis is evil, the gun is good. But I also always mix up in my mind with John Varley's novel Steel Beach, which starts with the line the penis is obsolete, mm-hmm. which is he, and of course Varley is another one of these writers who kind of comes out of the 1970s, and he has a great series of books that um, I talk about all the time because they were very influential to me when I was a young queer kid trying to figure out what the hell was going on. And he has this book that starts with the, the novel Titan, which is about heroic lesbians on a giant cyborg planetoid that's in orbit around Saturn. And there's this this planetoid, which is called Gaia, um, has a bunch of creatures on it called Titanites who have three sets of genitals and look sort of like centaurs and everybody's humping everybody. And so the lesbians are just like totally normalized because it's like, okay, there's humping centaurs, all right? Uh-huh. So it's just like, oh yeah, and also there's some lesbians. Um, and I, yeah. I just, and that was kind I feel like that's kind of emblematic of what happens in the 70s in science fiction. Yeah, and actually when you get into the 80s and 90s and beyond, there's just a lot more casual queerness in terms of like experimental films, but also more and more mainstream films and television. You have things like The Hunger, which is a lesbian vampire movie that harkens back to Camilla. Are you making a pass at me, Mrs. Bullock? Not that I'm aware of, Sarah. David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve and Susan Sarandon. I mean, it's, right. it's its own form of sexuality. And then there's your favorite movie, Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> Which is actually mid-70s. So, right. So we're kind of going we're back. Kind of time. going back a little bit. But, yeah, Which is appropriate. The hunger, yeah, because the time warp and stuff. But I mean, that's a classic example of kind of the height of, of queer science fiction sensibilities in the 70s. Not not to say that that was what all science fiction was doing, but um, it became, you know, an interactive story that fostered communities all over the place in the United States and probably beyond, probably, uh, I know people in Canada where this happened as well. And, you know, for me, I grew up in a super conservative area and the only place we could really find queer kids to hang out with in high school was to go to see Rocky Horror Picture Show where you were allowed to dress sexy, to cross-dress, to, um, you know, be performatively gay. And at the same time, you could kind of hide it because you're just dressing up as characters, <laughs> even though, of course, like a ton of us had like, you know, our first like gay kiss or whatever at, at Rocky Horror. Because, But of course, we're just doing it in character. You know, it's just like what we have to do. So I think that that was I think that's an interesting moment because it's kind of the place also in science fiction where we see the blossoming of fandom. And it's mm-hmm. really in the mid seventies that we see kind of modern fandom coming into being like by the late seventies with things like star Wars. And so it's like you have queer fandom kind of like branching out of Rocky horror. And then you have like a, a more straight fandom coming out of other narratives. Yeah. And I think that the like slogan of Rocky horror, don't dream it, be it is sort of like emblematic of how science fiction was going from just sort of hinting at like gauzy visions of potential queerness off in the distance to actually embodying those things and having them be right there. And like, you didn't just have to like imagine them kind of distantly. You could actually see them and they were things that you could emulate at least not the centaurs, but the other stuff. (laughs) And also like just that it was so uh, obviously eroticizing characters that were queer. Like, mm-hmm. And in fact, the straight characters have to become queer by the end in order for them to really kind mm-hmm. of sparkle. And, you know, the fact that there was Frankenfurter 
front and center just being so sexy like that just meant everything to me like it was like that you know I knew that that was the kind of person that I wanted to hook up with (laughs) and then you know the 70s speaking of the blossoming of fandom in the 70s that was also the era of Kirk and Spock slash fiction which was a huge development in fandom and in queer culture in which all these women some of whom may have actually been straight but many of whom were queer in their own way were writing these incredibly beautiful romantic, sensual stories about Kirk and Spock from yeah, Star Trek so hot and having sex. And, you know, they were coming up with, like, vocabulary to describe the Vulcan penis. And they were thinking Hint, about... it has lots of ridges. And thinking about, like, <laughs> Ponfar and oh, the, yeah. uh, the Vulcan mating and what happens if the only person who's around when Spock is in heat basically is Kirk. Yeah, and, and this, like, is the, this is the birth of Fick. And, mm-hmm. you know, now, of course, it's like, everything is thick and like there's massive archives on the internet but at that time in the 70s it was like people mimeographing just stories Mm -hmm. that they were writing on their typewriters and the thing to to bring it back to joanna russ who we were talking about earlier she wrote an incredible essay i think in 1980 Mm -hmm. about ks fiction um which i think is one of the i think it's the first essay that anyone ever wrote that was like a serious scholarly consideration of this stuff or even even just serious. It doesn't matter that it was scholarly. And she talked about the phenomenon and why women are drawn to stories about two men being, um, being queer. And her idea was that basically it's, it's fantasies of romance with mutuality where both people in the romance are equals and that that's an incredibly powerful fantasy for women, especially in the seventies and eighties where it was almost impossible to have a heterosexual relationship where you really did feel like you were equals with your partner because you were either earning less money or you didn't even have a job. It's in that sense, it's a very utopian fantasy because it's, it's imagining, you know, having, having an equal partner who you love. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about Star Trek because Star Trek is a franchise, which for many years sort of flirted with queerness, like Star Trek, the next generation has, you know, the famous, man walking down the corridor in the first episode wearing a scant which is sort of a skirt pant combo and um, which is actually a thing that gene roddenberry was like super into having in there right yeah like he, he was he like okay in the future, women will wear pants men will wear scants david Gerald, who wrote the man who folded himself was one of the producers of tng and really wanted to have a gay character on the show really wanted to he wrote an episode of the show that was about a gay couple and gene roddenberry and the powers that be would not let it appear it's since been filmed as like a fan-made Star Trek episode, so you can watch it on YouTube. But back in the late 80s, it was not allowed. And it was like a huge thing that fans talked about for years, that there was this gay couple on Star Trek that we were not allowed to have. And then later, you know, they would have episodes that kind of hinted at queerness, like where Riker goes to the planet where nobody has gender. There's a subculture of them who fetishize gender. That's right. Basically, it's like homo planet where like heterosexuality is outlawed. It was just the worst. It was like, hello, we are grown up enough now that we can actually just have gay people. We don't need to have your dumb... I mean, the point is, by the time Star Trek was doing these kinds of clumsy metaphors, most science fiction fans had gotten used to seeing explicit queerness that was already, like, very much discussed in itself, in their fiction, and even in some underground films, like some of the ones we've mentioned. And so it felt just, like, irrelevant and weird, and then you would have Jadzia Dax, who had been in a male body previously, and her her previous host had been male, 
and now she would occasionally meet women who she, she met met. that one woman who she was still in love with, but then that had to be forbidden for other dumb. There reasons. was well, Beverly Crusher falls in love with a trill. No, no, no. In, oh, okay. in Deep Space Nine, there's that episode where right. like Dax's hot chick previous lover or whatever and again they do this dumb thing where they're like well it's not because they're lesbian i mean obviously they think lesbianism is fine the problem is there's a taboo in their society against like getting back together with someone that you were with in a oh, previous body right. and it's like again come on people like <laughs> give it up like that was literally the hottest like situation that dax was ever in in that show it was like really the only compelling thing that she ever did. I like Dax and Worf, but mostly just because it was cute. Okay, yeah. Okay, I, I take I it all Dax back. I Worf. do take it all back. Yeah, Worf, I feel like Worf deserves a little bit better, but that's fine. Yeah, and then meanwhile in the 1980s, you have Doctor Who, which is being produced by uh, a gay man, John Nathan Turner. Like, the entire 1980s of Doctor Who is produced by a gay man. John Nathan Turner was, was not openly gay, but it was an open secret. And during that era, you have the Doctor suddenly gets younger and cuter, at one point has like this awesome blonde <laughs> hair and he's suddenly spending a lot more time with like you know younger men who he has these kind of special relationships i mean they have like these complicated relationships which are kind of like spiky but also affectionate like the doctor has adric and then later he has turlo it's kind of the return of the male companion after a long 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 time yeah and of not be having male companions but the show cannot ever explicitly acknowledge its queerness in the 80s. It just has to kind of hint at it. And it gets increasingly campy and kind of over the top and pantomime but never actually comes out. And then you have, like, in 2005, Russell T. Davies brings Doctor Who back from the dead. And it's just right there on the page. Well, and of course, Russell T. Davies was famous for doing Queer as Folk. Like, right. he basically, I mean, and he always was a huge Doctor Who fan. Like, that was, like, part of his childhood. But he also was, like super into being an out gay guy and right. he was like okay well now that i'm done doing the gay thing i'm all about doctor who right and he had in his first season he introduces uh captain jack harkness who yep. is one of the queerest characters in science fiction history ever who <laughs> kisses the doctor like in the first season and you know later has like an incredibly beautiful romantic and unfortunately tragic relationship with yanto on torchwood which is, of course, like yet another insanely gay show. Like, yeah. the gayest show ever, which Pretty is much delightful. Everybody in Torchwood is bisexual in their first season, which Super is great. Delightful. And they have sex with aliens and all yeah. kinds of other stuff. We were partners. In what way? In every way. And then some. It was two weeks. Except that two weeks was trapped in a time loop, so we were together for five years. It's like having a wife. You were the wife. You were the wife. No, you were the wife. Oh, but I was a good wife. That's what I love is when when science fiction finally acknowledges this gay subtext and it's like, oh, okay, actually, we're all gay. Then you can get into these really interesting stories where you're like, oh, now we can explore other kinds of metaphors and other kinds mm -hmm. of sexuality that we don't maybe have even words for yet. But but we kind of move beyond that that place of like, wow, gayness is a thing. It's like, yeah, okay, we've known that for like 100 years. So now let's move on and figure out what all this other stuff is that we're trying to figure out. Yeah, one of the things that's so interesting is that time travel comes up again and again as a theme in, in stories that are queer. There's Doctor Who, obviously, but we were talking earlier about The Man Who Folded Himself by David Gerald, The Female Man by Joanna Russ. I feel like there's just something about queerness that causes time to bend. I mean, <laughs> Tiny whiny. It is sort of like the warping of time, like the time warp. Let's go time warp again. 
as like yeah. the Rocky Horror Picture Show is kind of emblematic of like queerness and kind of the breaking down of boundaries. But also time travel is a way to meet yourself or to meet other versions of yourself or to kind of encounter another version of your life, which right. is kind of like a way of thinking about coming out. Or It's a... also a way of thinking about homosexuality mm -hmm. because, of course, that's supposed to be attraction to the like. Attraction mm -hmm. to someone who's like you, that's literally what homosexuality means. And of course, there's huge debates, you know, among queer theorists, uh, especially in the 90s about like, is it really true that we're attracted to <laughs> sameness? Because like, maybe I'm like a skinny little nerd who's attracted to bears. Like, is that uh -huh. really sameness? But the point is that that's kind of the idea is that, that some, there's something about homosexuality specifically that means that you're like hot for yourself. Right. Well, and time travel is also like the ultimate kind of swashbuckling adventure. And like one of my favorite kind of like goofy shows right now is Legends of Tomorrow, which is a time travel show where one of the main characters, Sarah Lance, is a lesbian. And my favorite parts are when she just like goes back in time and seduces Guinevere in the court of King Arthur or seduces some other like historical women. And it's just like every episode. It's like, what historical famous lady is going to fall in love with Sarah Lance and like end up in bed with her this week? I hate to see a lady so beautiful, so sad. Your husband enjoys the company of his male courtiers. Why should I be denied a similar pleasures? There's nothing better than time travel to like not have to deal with the consequences mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. things that of, of taboos, you know, right. because gayness has been queerness has have been so taboo throughout most of history that like, wouldn't it be great if you could just like parachute in, uh -huh. you know, have sex with your beloved of choice and parachute out. The other thing too, is that, you know, a lot of the way that we think about queerness, even now has to do weirdly with a kind of having a time travel perspective. And I was thinking about this in the context of the It Gets Better campaign, oh, right. where it's all about like, okay, I know it sucks right now, but just use your mind to time travel to the future when you're going to be a grown up gay person and it's going to be fine. And so it's like you're invited to always be thinking about a version of yourself at some other time. And that's when it's going to be okay. It's like in the future or in the past, as long as you can escape from the past. <laughs> right. And like the future is when gay people are finally going to be accepted or queer people are going to finally be accepted. And when everything is actually going to be okay. And that like the better future that we wish we could fast forward to, like as a society mm -hmm. is one of tolerance and inclusion and, and all those good things. Oh, and another novel from the seventies that we forgot to mention is the forever war where the guy goes to war and then comes back and it's so much later in time that everybody's become homosexual and he's like the only person who's not homosexual anymore. Like he's the last straight person left and he feels alienated and it's sort of this weird metaphor because it's like, what if it was the other way around? And like, yeah. how would you feel if everybody was gay except for you? It's so funny how, I mean, we've been sort of talking about how gayness becomes a metaphor in science fiction or science fiction comes up with lots of metaphors mm -hmm. for gayness. And of course, one of the big metaphors is vampires. Mm -hmm. um, and that was one of the things that I found so frustrating about the show True Blood, which of course I watched like a maniac. It's not like I didn't watch every freaking episode. Um, right. But I mean, it was, it started out with like, vampires are basically gay people. Like that was like clearly the metaphor mm -hmm. that Alan Ball was going for, who is also an out gay guy who, who is a showrunner and creator of the show. And then as the show went on, it was like, really Alan Ball? Like, is that the metaphor you're going for? Like that gay people are like 
cruel abusers of humans. Serial killers. Serial killers who have, like, a secret cabal and are, like, you know, like, basically just using people. And it, it seemed like it was one of those metaphors that sounded really great on paper. And then once you started like expanding the narrative and like Mm -hmm. really exploring it, it was like, actually that seems kind of problematic. And it kind of, the vampire metaphor was great, I guess, back in the 19th century with Carmilla, where it was like, okay, all sexuality is kind of scary, especially female sexuality. And so, and also we have no other tools to talk about this other than to just sort of invoke transgression. But like, by the time that True Blood comes around, like, I feel like maybe we could have told a better story. But, you know, that's just one of, of many different metaphors. Like, there's also, I mean, not just vampires, but, like, monsters in general are often kind of gay. I feel like Swamp Thing gets a little gay up in there sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mutants, like the X-Men are almost... The X-Men are so gay. They're explicitly We already gay know they're gay. And, like, Duh. In one of the X-Men movies, there's that whole scene where somebody asks their kid have you ever tried not being a mutant? And it's like, <laughs> so clearly, like, they we're going to send new, you to like, you know, yeah. mutant rehab. Camp. We're going to cure you of being a mutant. It yeah. Just, it feels very explicitly like a commentary on gayness. Yeah. There's a lot of gay aliens um, mm-hmm. or aliens who kind of, whose sexuality is like challenging to mm-hmm. our norms. And like, I always feel like the movie species is basically about oh, right. some kind of weird thing where it's like, what if women could penetrate men? You know, uh-huh. and it's this kind of, terrifying <laughs> idea right um and then of course robots are all gay right like For data sure. data is so gay like absolutely uh, i mean obviously c3po is c3po gay. is incredibly gay and speaking of monstrous queerness one show that really fascinated me and sometimes in terrible ways was american horror story which is a very explicitly queer show there's a lot of queer characters and Frequently, their queerness is kind of part of the grotesqueness of the show in general. But also their fear of other people's judgment and also how they'll be treated by mainstream America. That becomes a really explicit theme in, one, in some of mm-hmm. the later seasons is that, you know, it's it's not just gay people as horror, but it's gay horror. It's, mm-hmm. it's what horrifies and terrifies us as queer people. I'm not saying it's done well. It's kind of like True Blood where I'm like, eh, you know, maybe you could have picked a better metaphor. But it's an attempt to kind of talk about what it's like to be gay in America right now. Right. And, you know, that leads me to sort of wondering if we're finally ready to get past the story of the gay person being persecuted or actually killed, the tragic gay story that people always refer to whether we're ready to finally get past that being the main narrative that we tell about queer people in science fiction. And, you know, I gotta, I gotta tell you, Charlie, I don't, (laughs) (laughs) I don't think we're there yet. I think often we're talking to other queer writers and they'll say things like, I wrote a story where like, there's a happy ending for gay people Uh and we all smile and hug each other and high five when that happens. Right. Because it's it's so fucking rare. And it's, that's awful. Like, mm-hmm. you know, straight people shouldn't be able to hog all the happy endings. Like, I'm super psyched for them to have tons of happy endings, too. But, like, we want to have some. Yeah. And I like, mean, there's no shortage. Like, you can have all of the happy endings for straight people and all the happy endings for gay people. And we'll still have 100% of happy endings remaining. Absolutely. There's not a limited supply of happy endings. And, like, most genre of fiction, unless it's straight up, like, dystopian dark horror, tends to have a happy ending anyway. I mean, then or you have at least like, like an okay ending. You have something like Sense8 in which 
really plays to the sort of persecuted minority kind of aspect of it. Yeah. Where it's like we're being hunted, we're being caught. And it does have a lot of like really uplifting, happy stuff in the midst of that, like their relationship between uh, Jamie Clayton's character and Fumi Agiman's character uh, is really beautiful and really lovingly depicted. I don't think there's been a single day when I didn't hear that same voice in my head telling me, whatever you do, do not let her go. <laughs> Nomi Marks, will you marry me? <laughs> There's a lot of other stuff in that show that's like really gorgeous and like affirming of queer people and doesn't show them as purely tragic, but it also does have um, this kind of we're being hunted and persecuted and kind of that's kind of bound up with the fact that so many of the characters are queer. One of the things that does kind of lead to happy endings or at least not sad endings in queer stories is certain kinds of technologies. Like mm -hmm. we were already talking about time travel, which I think is a great example. We see a lot of utopian stuff happening with queer time travel, but also um, reproductive technologies. Mm -hmm. And I, we were talking earlier about stuff from the 80s. Lois McMaster Bujold has a great novel um, that's in her For Kozigan series, but it's kind of a, it's one of those side note ones. She has like mm -hmm. 90 million of those novels. And at the core of all of those novels, is a technology that she calls the uterine replicator, which is an artificial womb. And it enables all of these fascinating narratives, including this 80s novel called Ethan of Athos, which is a planet of gay men. And Ethan is one of the guys from this planet. And they do um, you know, good deeds to get to accumulate um, basically social capital. And if they do enough good deeds, if they do enough community service and, and do their jobs well, they are able to have a child using a uterine replicator and using eggs uh, provided by um, women elsewhere in the known universe. Mm -hmm. And of course, it, because it's a Forkosigan novel, there's a kind of a murder and like a whole whodunit part of it that has to be solved. But the world building is fantastic. It's like this really interesting way of thinking about how would you have like a functioning all queer society? And the way that it works is like, oh, we have this technology that liberates us from having to have heterosexuality be at the core of reproducing humanity. Mm -hmm. It's like humanity has been totally liberated from that. Also, women have been liberated from that too. And so, of course, a lot of the novels are about women being, you know, what happens to women when we no longer have to just bear children in order to, like, maintain humanity? Yeah, you were mentioning that Ammonite by uh, Nicola Griffith from 1992 also has a similar kind of parthenogenesis. Yeah, yeah, so we were talking about Herland earlier, the Charlotte Perkins Gilman novel, which has parthenogenesis. And then, yeah, um, Nicola Griffith, who is an amazing queer writer, has that idea in Ammonite. And Ammonite is also a planet of queer people. Uh, it's women. And they, yeah, they, they reproduce through parthenogenesis. And it's a little bit, I, I'm not sure that it's technological in that book. I think it's a, it's a little bit like, they just love each other so much. I think they're on a planet that does things to change their yeah, body. Yeah, it changes their biology. It's That's a right. super fascinating setup. Like they and like, I don't think men can come to that planet without being killed. No, they're well. They yeah, they have all kinds of problems, and so it's an amazing novel. It's really fantastic. I mean, she's gone on to write some incredible stuff uh, as well, like you know, historical novels about uh, queer people. Her novel Hild, which is like one of the greatest books ever, is like a retelling of. St. Hilda and you know it's it's all about this young queer medieval badass chick who's just like 
you know, wielding a sword, getting laid, super great. Yeah, and, and so Nicola Griffith is part of this 90s flowering of queer science fiction writers that kind of mirrors what we were talking about happening in the 70s, where there's suddenly like more openly queer people writing stuff, except it's kind of taking it even further. You've got people like Nalo Hopkinson, who starts writing in the mid-90s and is openly queer and has a lot of bisexual and other queer themes in her work. You have Joelle Gomez, who writes a lesbian vampire novel called The Gilda Stories that's become considered a huge classic. You have Jeff Ryman, who's been writing for like 25 years now, who has written some incredible stories about queer relationships and also like different kinds of reproduction. Yeah, and And Octavia Butler was writing in the 80s and 90s, and she has a lot of exploration of aliens and humans becoming kind of half alien and kind of how that changes our sexuality. And one of the things that um, happens in a lot of these books that we're talking about is that it isn't just queer identity, it's really intersectional. Like a lot of these novels deal with racial identity, Mm -hmm. deal with post-colonial identity. And so we're seeing sexuality dealt with in a really nuanced way. Like it's not just like, oh, and now we're on the planet of gay people. It's like, (laughs) no, actually we're in like a futuristic Toronto with like, you know, Caribbean people and some of them are queer and some of them aren't. And it's like a rich, well-imagined community of actual humans. Yeah. And then that leads us to like more recently, you had like another wave of novels, which include things like Long Way to a, a Small Angry Planet by Becky Chambers. And there's been a couple of sequels to that since, which have just very kind of like casually queer, open relationships. And, you know, in the first novel, spoiler alert, uh, one of the main human female characters ends up getting together with an alien woman, but it's not the the fact that it's a relationship with an alien is not some kind of metaphor for lesbianness. They're lesbians and she's and an they're alien. alien. Yeah, and, and she's from like a polyamorous culture, right. and so and that that's again something that I think starts happening kind of in the '90s and in in the noughties or the aughts or whatever the hell we're calling them, where suddenly it's as I said, like once gayness becomes the text or queerness becomes the text then suddenly all this other stuff starts bubbling up and we start mm-hmm. questioning, like you get things like Battlestar Galactica and Caprica, which both show actually not entirely unhealthy polyamorous relationships. Mm-hmm. Actually in Caprica, they just kind of unhealthy. It's but it, not the greatest. It's not the greatest, but it's, there's this clear suggestion that like polyamory is just kind of a thing that everybody's, that you can do. Like right. nobody, nobody thinks that's weird. Like they think it's weird that it's a creepy cult, but like, that's not, they're not like, Oh, well you're all sleeping together in a big group. Well, that must be what's wrong with you. It's like, no, 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 it's because you're trying to create heaven in virtual reality. That's the problem. Right. Uh, you also have authors like uh, Marianne Mohanraj, who has this novel that came out a few years ago called The Stars Change. It's about queerness, but it's also about aliens and humans getting together. It's set on a, a university planet, which I love because mm-hmm. I love universities and um, I love the idea of like a whole planet that's that's sort of like that. And the way that, that, uh, the, way that the Stars Change is set up is it's linked stories And each story ends with the character having sex with someone. And then the next story is about the person they've had sex with. And then, of course, it all ends up coming together. And so it's it's kind of a set of short stories, but it's also kind of a novel because we we sort of follow an event that's happening. Um, But, yeah, some of them are like gay lizards. You know, some of them are like lesbian humans. Um, some of them are like just really nice um, grannies who like help out when there's an emergency. Again, it's sort of not just rethinking sexuality, but rethinking families and Mm -hmm. rethinking connections between people through sexuality. 
Yeah, and I, I really, I feel like it's been wonderful just in the last few years to see much more kind of varied kinds of queerness and much more intersectional queerness even than in, we saw in the 90s. Oh, yeah. Just coming out everywhere in science fiction and fantasy. Like, if you look at just a lot of the stuff that's been nominated for, like, major awards, like the Nebula and the Hugo in the last three or four years, you just suddenly see all this stuff that is queer in different ways from, like, Anne Leckie's kind of, like, we're just going to call everybody she no matter what novels to... Or J.Y. Young, who has characters that are third gender right. uh, in their novel, in their novellas. Um, there's a linked Tenseret series. Right, and then you have things like, I mean, Sarah Gailey's Hippo novellas, which have just all kinds of queerness. Like, there's a gay man who... <laughs> Who gets together with, I think, a non a non-binary person named Hero. And there's just there's so and much stuff books. going on right now. And at least in books, we've just gone so far beyond even the questions of like whether gays need to be tragic or whether we need to worry about that. And like uh, NK Jemison has some incredible queer characters in the Broken Earth trilogy. And again, polyamorous characters. Right. So I think it's really, like I said, I think that that's one of the things that we really should be looking out for in science fiction going forward is that as queerness is normalized to a certain extent, we're going to be seeing new kinds of relationships coming up. And, and again, this is going to get at like, what do we think of as kin? Mm-hmm. Who is our family? How do we form those kinds of close supportive relationships and come and maybe coming up with a lot of new recipes for that and also coming up with new ways of thinking about gender and, and we already promised that that'll be a future episode but I do think that you know the rise in people identifying as non-binary or asexual or all kinds of other possibilities are part of that revolution is that we're really thinking about what does it mean to be in a relationship with another person or another sapient being? And actually we have lots of options. It isn't just like fuck them or not fuck them. Okay. Like there's all kinds of shit in between there. And that's, what's wonderful. Like you don't have to make that choice. You could be like, you know, we're just special friends. We're like cake friends. We're like we had sex once friends or we're mm-hmm. like, we'll have sex in the future friends or we'll travel through time and have sex, but only in 1864. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, Yeah. and and to bring it back around to what we talked about in the beginning, I feel like a lot of what's so great in queerness in written science fiction right now is that there's a sense that reality itself is a little bit up for grabs, like there are paradoxes, there's kind of things are a little bit wobbly, like we didn't really talk about it, but like Kat Valenti's palimpsest has this thing where you can enter another reality almost through having sex with people yeah and it's a it's a sexually transmitted portal right to another reality and i feel like that kind of stuff is just becoming really exciting because it even as in the real world reality is feeling less and less nailed down to any kind of thing reliable in fiction we're kind of celebrating how reality can come unglued and how you can kind of just shape your own reality with the people that you love or the people that you want to be with for however long you want to be with them. And meanwhile, the idea of the monstrous and the kind of like terrifying and the alienated can be something that we deal with with our queer family together. Like we face it alongside our queer family instead of it being our queer family. As we sort of discussed before, those ideas, those metaphors, the alien, the monster, the outcast, the mutant, 
those are coming to stand in for new things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in 50 years, I hope someone's doing a, a poop cast or a zurbdoff <laughs> about, you know, well, now that we no longer refer to this, this subjugated minority as mutants, like we're, we're moving on to a new to mm-hmm. realm. Um, but then we'll have actual mutants. Yeah, well, we already have, like, do kind powers. of technically have mutants now. Yeah. But, um, but yes, by then, hopefully, you know, we will have solved all the problems in the world and it'll be great. We'll be living in her land. So, thanks for listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or any place else that you can possibly subscribe to a podcast. And please follow us on Twitter at OOACpod and tell all your friends about us and possibly knock on some doors. I don't know. Um, yeah, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Review us, please. And, and, you know, thanks to Veronica Simonetti at Women's Audio Mission for editing this episode. And thanks so much for Chris Palmer for giving us some wonderful music. Yeah, and we'll see you in two weeks. So Don't forget to be weird. Yeah, don't forget to travel through time. Mm-hmm.